0: You know of my love of all things historical and of context, and so I thought it'd be fun to do a little bit of context about Mother's Day this year. Mother's Day uh, actually began in its present version in the 1900s, but it had a, a precursor And the original version of Mother's Day um, was actually founded by a woman named Julia Ward Howe. And I've got a picture of Mrs. Howe. Can we just leave that up for a few minutes? Julia Ward Howe was born in the 1800s. She was a poet and an author and an advocate for women's and African-American suffrage. Um, Really an amazing woman, um, devout Christian. Later in life, she also became a peace advocate after the end of the Civil War. She presided over the Women's International Peace Association in 1871 and was known as the dearest old lady in America, which I think is a good thing. Uh, And she helped launch something that she called the Mother's Peace Day. The Mother's Peace Day was launched in 1872 on June 2nd and it was celebrated every June 2nd from 72 to 1913, Uh, and it was an opportunity for everyone, mothers, um, women, everyone, to gather in churches and social halls and homes and to listen to sermons or essays and sing and pray for peace. And this um, happened in Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia, and Chicago, uh, and it was quite a significant deal until around 1913 um, when the movement began to fade away and as the world entered into World War I. This is a really interesting idea, this, this Mother's Peace Day, uh, this idea that perhaps Part of the purpose of this day might not just be to celebrate mothers, but also to recognize that somehow we all share something in common. We all have this, this common humanity that binds us together back to one mother and one father in the beginning of the story of Scripture. And, and perhaps that in this story, um, we might have a holiday focused on more than just cards, flowers, and chocolate. This morning we sang the least peaceful hymn I know. We sang the battle hymn of the Republic, right? Um, this was actually written during the Civil War, uh, and it became kind of the anthem for the, for the union. Do me a favor, um, because we made you practice this this morning, pull out a hymnal for a minute and, and look up hymn number, I believe it's 354. My eyes have seen the glory. 354, yep. And Look at the bottom left-hand corner of that hymn, and somebody tell me who wrote the words. Julia hey, it's Julia Ward Howe. Um, Julia Ward Howe actually wrote this as a poem that was published uh, in 81… I'm sorry, in 61, 1861, and uh, then ultimately became the hymn that we know and sing today. It's really interesting to me um, that our most militant hymn, Um, was written by a woman who became the leader of the Mother's Peace Day movement. And and it strikes me that those things are not entirely incongruous, that there may be times when we are called uh, to oppose those who are um, perpetrating injustice. There may be times when we're called to oppose those who are um, leading themselves or others down a dark path. And sometimes that might even mean that we oppose them by force of arms. But even when we do so, as Christians, we are to recognize that they are not our enemies, uh, that they are not evil, they are just being used by evil. Uh, And that God's great desire for um, our earthly opponents is that they might become, once again, our earthly sisters and brothers, Uh, that our real battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the cosmic powers of this present darkness, with the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. And that means everybody else is a potential sister and brother. If we can find our way to the peace of God that He designed us to be a part of, if we can find our way back to being the one family under the one Father that God designed us to be. In, in so many ways, I think that is the story of Joseph today. He's not a mother, I get it, um, but it is the story of a movement from seeing our earthly opponents as evil, to seeing them as those used by evil, those sisters and brothers that we hope to be reunited with under God's peace. So, Joseph does some weird stuff to his brothers in this story, Uh, and, and you noticed a lot of it, right? Joseph, first of all, I mean, I get not immediately revealing himself, but he pretends to not know them. He speaks through an interpreter to pretend he doesn't know their language, uh, and he starts accusing them of things immediately. You guys are spies. You're here to, to see where everything is and rob us blind. And, and then he imprisons them for three days, uh, and then he says, hey, you have to bring your youngest brother back and leave one other brother here while you go get him as collateral. And then, uh, and the, the weirdest thing that he does as they leave, he has his servants put their money back in their bags, so when they open up their bags to get the food that they bought, uh, there's their money again, which seems obviously problematic. And the whole time I'm reading this story, I'm thinking about a song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm thinking about a song by the band Foreigner called Head Games. Anybody know this song? Um, last week, I, I hummed part of the A-Team theme, and I got a lot of grief for that, so I'm not going to sing Foreigner. But it feels like head games, right? It feels like Joseph is just playing with their minds, right, messing with them to get back at them for all they did to him. But I don't believe that to be the case. In fact, I think Joseph is doing something incredibly profound and important um, on on a really simple human level and then on a spiritual level as well. So, on a human level, on on a very basic concept, I believe Joseph is trying to save the life of his brother Benjamin. Okay? Uh, Joseph, remember, has one full brother and he has 10 half brothers. Benjamin is his only full brother, the son of his mother and his father and Benjamin, Joseph might assume, is in deadly peril from his other ten siblings, right? The other ten siblings that got rid of Joseph because he was the favored son, Joseph assumes, correctly it appears in our story, that the favor of Jacob has now fallen on Joseph's only full brother, Benjamin. And as his brothers tried to kill him, so they might try to kill Benjamin. And so, I think behind everything that Joseph does in this story is the simple idea that he wants to save the life of his youngest brother. The only way he can do that is by making them bring Benjamin to him in Egypt. And so, we have this complicated story that results in the the brothers needing to preserve Benjamin's life and deliver him safely to Joseph in Egypt. By the way, I, I think even Jacob is worried about Benjamin's life. Did you notice that? Jacob doesn't send his son Benjamin with the other ten siblings because he's afraid that harm might befall him. So, on a really simple level, as head gamey as it se- seems, I believe Joseph's just trying to rescue his brother. Um, but there's a much deeper level that's happening in this story as well. I think Joseph, and this is ironic for something that happens in chapter 50, but I think Joseph is in the place of God in this story. I think we're supposed to read this story as though Joseph is acting towards his brothers as God acts towards us. And in this role, in this reading, with Joseph in the place of God, we see a purpose behind all of his actions— Joseph is trying to lead his brothers to repentance. It's been 13 years since they've seen each other, and in those 13 years, a lot has changed for Joseph. Uh, And uh, I do not believe that as I read this story, Joseph is acting with anger or uh, in a punitive sense. I think Joseph is trying to bring his brothers… out of their own darkness and back into his family to be a family of peace again. So, we get some clues to this. Uh, We get, first of all, um, Joseph remembering the dreams he dreamed about them. Joseph was given these dreams by God at the beginning of a story, and when he remembers them in this moment, he is remembering that this has all been part of God's plan. That this whole crazy series of events, as awful, as horrific as it was that he went through, from um, attempted murder by his brothers to being sold into slavery, to being imprisoned, to being forgotten, all of that was somehow going to lead to this redemptive moment where the world is saved through Joseph. Joseph is seeing that happen now, and so when he remembers his dreams, it's not like God remembering Noah… And his promises to Noah in the midst of the flood. It sounded like God remembering Abraham and his promises to Abraham that he would have a wife through, a, a child through his wife, Sarah. Joseph remembers the, the promises of God. But then his response to his brothers uh, is really to call them out, right? You are spies. Um, he doesn't call them out and say, "Hey, I am Joseph, and you are in trouble." Because um, at that moment, there's no way for real repentance. Now I- Imagine if in this moment, Joseph said, hey, um, 13 years ago, remember that when you tried to murder your brother and then sold him into slavery? It's me. They're not going to say, well, we'd do it again in a heartbeat if we could. They're going to say, oh gosh, you are like the boss man now, so we're going to pretend that we really feel bad about this. So, what, what Joseph needs is not forced repentance He wants genuine repentance. By the way, this is what God wants from us, right? Could God make you repent? Of course He could. Could God show up in your life at this moment and speak with a thundering voice and list everything you've ever done wrong and tell you what you should have done instead? Of course He could. And would you say, I'm sorry? Of course you would. And would it mean anything? No, not at all. You're just doing it because you're scared, because the boss man tells you. So Joseph says, I want to find a way for them to have real repentance, so he makes up this story, says your spies, puts them in prison, then says, bring your youngest brother back to me. And then he says, I'm going to keep one of your brothers here. And in all of this, we get this, um, we get this sense of fear right, that the brothers must be feeling. And, and they, they actually say this in verse 21. They say, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This is why this anguish has come upon us. It's interesting, they actually connect it, right? I mean, they, they actually on their own connect the bad things happening to them to the bad thing that they have done. But it's significant that recognition is not repentance. Recognition is not repentance Though it may be the beginning of repentance. C.S. Lewis um, speaks about this kind of behavior of God. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul." Lewis's point is not that every bad thing that happens to us happens because God is trying to teach us a lesson, okay? So, get rid of that idea for a moment. Instead, he wants to say that sometimes God is left with no other option but to try to wake us up through the megaphone of His pain. Uh, And I I think that's what Joseph is doing to his brothers. I think we do this all the time, right? As parents, um, we do this. Um, Mothers, you've done this a lot, right? Uh, I want to teach you this behavior is not appropriate, so I will use the megaphone of pain. I will put you in timeout. I will take away your cell phone. I will cancel your extracurriculars. I will not let you go out. I will set a curfew. You are grounded, right? Why do we do those things? Because we hope that a little bit of pain now might save them from a world of pain later. We hope that a little bit of of self-reflection now might cause them to um, not go into that pattern of behavior that we worry about so much. When we are parenting well, the purpose of punishment is not punitive. It's redemptive. It's to bring our kids back to peace. Peace. We've had this conversation before in regards to people dealing with addiction, we often talk about interventions as a way to raise up the rock bottom, right? Everybody's got to hit rock bottom before they change, we often say, but you can raise up the rock bottom. Let's not make it a hospital visit. Let's not make it overdosing. Let's make it a really uncomfortable conversation with the family, because if we can raise up the rock bottom, if we can use that megaphone, we might reach them and bring them to some recognition. That's not all that's accomplished in this story. It's not just that there is a recognition of their sin. We get this really interesting account of Reuben's speech to his brothers. Reuben, the oldest of the brothers of the twelve, is the only one who has had more or less a positive perspective. Reuben is the one who said, "'Don't murder Joseph.'" back in chapter 37. Reuben is the one who said, uh, I'm going to come back and free him later. He fails, but he plans on doing it. Uh, and here Reuben says, hey, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you not to sin against our brother? And, and if you had listened to me, this would not be happening. Reuben says, hey, I recognize that there's a reckoning for His blood. There's a reckoning for His blood. And I think… Um, I think there is this implication that we've moved beyond just recognition to remorse. Remorse is great. Remorse is not repentance, but it's an important step on the road to repentance. And it's striking to me that in this moment, Joseph runs off and weeps not the only time in our story this is going to happen, but uh, in this chapter, it's the only moment that Joseph is so overwhelmed by emotion that he has to turn away and cry and then come back. And I think, again, Joseph is in the place of God here. We know that the, the process of repentance It's a cause for incredible emotion in God. Jesus says there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. So I think at this moment we see God's overwhelming emotion in those moments when we are moving back towards Him, when we are um, taking those first steps on the road to repentance. Um, But, and this is really important, Remorse is not repentance. Confession isn't repentance either. Though they don't quite confess their sin here, we see the beginnings of it. Um, Repentance is more than all of that, it is a true turning away from an old life into a new life with God. So we get one more weird story. We get the money in their sacks. Joseph sends them off. He puts their money that they bought their food with back in their sacks, and he sends them off home. And and this is the most head gamey of all of the things that Joseph does. I get it. I see it. Um, But the response is really striking. So the first brother, whoever it is, opens up his sack and finds the money there, and then we get this really important response We're told um, that he looks to his brothers and he says, what is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? Uh, And the way he says this is significant. Um, We've been talking about some of these themes that run throughout Genesis, uh, and there's a a question that keeps getting asked in the book of Genesis. It's the question, what this? Anybody, for bonus points today, remember how to say what this in Hebrew? No bonus points. I got somebody… I, oh, come on. You know it? Mazot! Oh, bonus points. Well done. Okay. Uh, so, we, we've had this question again and again. God speaking to the serpent after the sin of the garden. Mazot. What this? What have you done? Pharaoh speaking to Abraham after discovering that Abraham sold his wife into essentially sexual slavery to Pharaoh. Mazot. Mazot. What is this you've done? Every time we've heard this phrase, it's almost always been someone in the position of God speaking to someone in the position of the serpent, asking them what they were doing. Here for the first time in Genesis, we have the same people in both roles. Um, We have people that are the the seed of the serpent looking to each other and saying, what this, mazot, right? In the role of God, and in the role of the serpent. They're both. Uh, and, and this is an incredibly important, huge moment in the story of Scripture. Um, it is possible for those who are living like the seed of the serpent to become the seed of the woman. It is possible for those who are living a life of selfishness and self-centeredness to be transformed, to be changed. What it requires is this idea of repentance. It requires this transformation. It requires a turning around of our lives that begins with recognition and remorse and confession, but leads to some kind of action. It leads to some kind of action that people do. Um, I I had a… There's a band uh, called Cayman's Call, and a song that I love, and in that song there's a line, you can lead a horse to water, you can even make him drink, but you can't change his point of view. Uh, and and this, is, this is God with us. This is Joseph with His brothers. Um, we can be led to water. We can be forced to drink, but repentance is when our point of view is changed, when our life is turned around, when we finally begin to make sense and, and become someone different. And we get one little bit of this story as well, and it's the weirdest part of this whole story, and this is a weird chapter. Um, Did you notice the end thing that Reuben says to his dad? Super creepy, right? Reuben says, hey, dad, um, I'll take Benjamin down to this weird guy in Egypt, and I'll deliver him there, and I'll bring him back safely. And if I don't bring him back safely, here are my two sons, your grandchildren. Feel free to kill them off so that, you know, if I don't bring your son back. And and I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I've been thinking, um, hopefully, no one ever in the history of time thought this was a good idea, right? And so, I'm thinking, this is just Jim Gates. Maybe this is like an idiom, you know? Like, maybe it's just something you said back in the day, like, hey, you know what? If I don't show up to session meeting on time, you can kill Jonathan and Asher all you want, right? And I think maybe this is not a good idiom. So, I'm going to encourage you to not bring it back. Um, Bob, Melanie, I don't encourage you to say, hey, you know, if if we screw up and don't show up for Sunday school on time, you can take out little John. That's not a good idea, okay? Um, but, but in the weirdness of this moment, Reuben's trying to repent. Reuben's trying to say, hey, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to walk away from that old life and walk towards God. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more next week. Reuben isn't the one that needs to repent, uh, and so uh, it doesn't change the story yet. Um, but in that moment, we get a glimpse a weird glimpse of what it might mean to walk away from our sin and walk towards Jesus. And it raises the question for us, right? Where are we in this story? Are we, uh, like the brothers, aware of some kind of brokenness in our life that's been there maybe for weeks or months? Maybe Maybe it's some kind of brokenness that's been in our life for 13 years, and we're not quite ready to make a change. Maybe God is shouting in our pain. Maybe God is trying to raise up the rock bottom of our life so that we can be spared a fate worse than death. Maybe we need to begin on that path of recognition and remorse and confession and repentance. Or maybe um, we're in the place of Joseph today. Maybe in your life there is someone who is not deserving of forgiveness. Maybe in your life there's someone who has sinned against you in such a profound and painful way uh, that there is nothing they could ever do to make it right again. Maybe you are supposed to be in the place of Joseph, in the place of God, and offer forgiveness that cannot be earned or deserved. That is just grace. This is an interesting story because it takes 13 years to get this right. And it strikes me that often in our lives, this process of of repentance is really slow and hard. And so, I come back to this beautiful passage in 2 Peter, where Peter is speaking to the people about the, the question of time, when is God going to come back? When is Jesus going to show up? When are we going to fix this messed up world? We got a war in Ukraine. We got war in South Sudan and Sudan. We got uh, hunger and we got hurricanes and we got famine and we have violence. We have all these things filling up our world. When is Jesus going to come back and make this right? And what is He waiting for? And Peter says, the Lord is not slow about His promise. But is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The story of Scripture is a story of a patient God who will come. Scripture says the day of the Lord will come like a thief, like a thief in the night. He will come, he will make the world right, but at the moment, God is waiting patiently hoping that we might come to repentance, that we, like Joseph's brothers, might recognize our broken lives and trust that God could do something different, that we, like Joseph, might recognize our brothers are not our enemies, and that we are called to march forward in peace. There's a great little book called Ender's Shadow um, and part of a a larger series of books, Uh, and in it, um, There's a sister, a a Catholic nun, who says, do you know why Satan is so angry all the time? Because whenever he works a particularly clever bit of mischief, God uses it to serve His own righteous purposes. In this conversation, another person speaks up and says, so God uses wicked people as His tools? She says, God gives us the freedom to do great evil if we choose. Then He uses His own freedom to create goodness out of that evil, for that is always what He chooses. So, in the long run, God always wins? Yes. In the short run, though, it can be uncomfortable. We are those people in the midst of the short run. And in this season of our lives, it may be uncomfortable to offer repentance or offer forgiveness as God does for us. But be patient with others, for the Lord is patient with you. Listen for His voice, whispering, speaking, and shouting to you. And remember that your time is not infinite, that Christ will return, that the world will be made right one day, but until then, it is our call, it is our work to invite the world on this day and every day back to being one family back to being a people of peace. May it be so in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.